The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, December 17th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As you get settled, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our Advent series, looking at some vignettes from Daniel. And while you're making your way there trying to find Daniel chapter 3, let me, let me say this. I, I enjoy, as a communicator, I enjoy telling stories. I like telling stories. I like to make moments in history uh, seem to come alive for people or take what may have been very familiar uh, and make it sound new, even as we're going through the Bible, helping you to read it like a human. Uh, But there's something that happens when you like to tell stories, and that's simply this. You've got to be very careful if you're telling a story that is historically uh, true because you need to get your details straight. Because if you don't get your details straight, you take what is true and you make it inaccurate. Um, An example of this would be Last week when I introduced you to a lady known as Mississippi Wynn, who died in 2012 at the age of 113, who was the last remaining recorded child of American slavery. At the time, she was the fourth oldest person in the world. All of that is true. But in my notes, I had another story and I made a judgment call based on the clock to tell you her story and not the story of another person. His name was Sylvester McGee. Now, if you go and look up Sylvester McGee, you'll find that he died in 1971 and that he was reportedly born, not in the 1900s, but in 1841. Now, I say reportedly because at that time, Sylvester McGee, as an African-American, was born into slavery before the Emancipation Proclamation. And so there isn't any real documentation of his actual birth. When I told Mississippi Wynn's story to you, I inadvertently mixed in the detail of her being born before the Emancipation Proclamation, which was not true. And some of you did my math for me (laughs) and reminded me of my error. My friend, thank you. Multiple people let me know that 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 wasn't actually possible. (laughs) And you're right. Because in my joy of telling stories, I inadvertently blended two stories. So I made two stories that are true into one story that wasn't really accurate. Um, So I apologize for my storytelling uh, not being as careful as it should be and could have been. So if you'll give me a mulligan, I'm gonna try again this morning. Um, Some of you might be familiar with the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Uh, They record the history of God's people in particular under the rule of Emperor Antiochus leading up to the great revolt, the Maccabean revolt in 167 BC. Um, History as well as the books of first and second Maccabees record Antiochus as being one of the most savagely brutal Roman emperors towards God's people. And if you go and you begin to read first and second Maccabees, you'll find in second Maccabees chapter seven, the story, a chilling story of a mother and her seven sons who were told by Antiochus to eat the flesh of a pig. Now God's people had been told that was something that was forbidden to them. And so when Antiochus commanded this mother and her seven sons to do what God had said for them not to do, one of the sons spoke up and said, we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors. So Antiochus ordered 
collections of cauldrons to be brought and heated up, and he ordered for pans to be brought to him. And I will spare you the details. You can go read them for yourself. But one by one, Antiochus gave each son the opportunity to be obedient to his command. And when they, each to a man, reading here from 2 Maccabees, would stand firm and proclaim confidence in God's justice and his future restoration, Antiochus would torture them in front of their brothers and their mother with the cauldrons and the frying pans, each one after the other, getting to the seventh son, who was the youngest son. And when he came to the seventh son, he actually offered this young boy rewards for doing what he said. So already his pride and his integrity was being insulted by his six brothers who wouldn't simply comply because he was the emperor. Let's try a different tack. He goes to the youngest and says, I'll give you rewards for doing what I said. And the youngest son, like his six brothers, would not comply. And the fullness of Antiochus' rage was poured out on this one young son. And he, in front of his mother, who had watched her other six sons be tortured in front of her, was brutally tortured. And after he was killed, their mother was killed along with them. Their experience was not, unfortunately, anything unique to the life of God's people. In fact, you can go and and get yourself a copy of the new Encyclopedia of Christian Martyrs. And in that encyclopedia, you will find that history records the story of another woman and her seven sons. She's known in church history as the pious widow, Symphorosa. Symphorosa and her seven sons live not under the reign of Antiochus, but under the reign of Hadrian some centuries later. She was a widow, history records, because her husband and her brother-in-law, her husband's brother, refused to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods. So Hadrian had them killed and she would live out the rest of her life as a widow raising her seven sons outside of the city. Years would go by and finally one day some of Hadrian's uh, workers or, or some of the people that were overseeing the various subsets of the city came to him and said, there is a widow who has seven sons in our area who is refusing to offer proper worship to the gods of Rome. So Hadrian ordered for this widow and her seven sons to be brought before him. New Encyclopedia of Christian Martyrs records Hadrian looking at this woman and her sons and saying, you either sacrifice to the most powerful gods with your sons or you yourself will be offered up as a sacrifice together with them. And if you go and read the story, the encyclopedia will tell you that Symphorosa welcomed the opportunity to be a sacrifice but not a sacrifice to Hadrian's gods. The pious widow Symphorosa responded to Hadrian this way, your gods cannot receive me as a sacrifice, but if I am burnt for the name of Jesus Christ, my death will increase the torment which your devils endure in the flames. But can I hope for so great a happiness as to be offered with my children as a sacrifice to the true and living God? I will spare you again the details of how the emperor responded. They're not pleasant. You can go read them for yourself. But the pious widow, Symphorosa, and her seven sons were all brutally murdered at the hands of Emperor Hadrian. Now it's hard, I know, for you and I in 2017 in the 21st century in Richmond, Virginia to really honestly get our heads around that kind of reality. But 
if I had prepared well enough and could just put it on the screen. The simple image of 21 Egyptian Christian men in orange jumpsuits kneeling on the beach of the Mediterranean awaiting their martyrdom by beheading due to the Islamic State. That image alone is all you and I need to be reminded that even today there are some things worth dying for. Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 1 Amongst all the questions that are being asked, together they continue to ask this one question of God's people. Is there anything in this life that you would be prepared to die for? Roy Clements, in writing about Daniel chapter 3, he said, The tragedy of modern Westerners is that we've run out of things we're prepared to die for. He said, this is disastrous because those who have nothing to die for ultimately then have nothing to live for. He said, you and I are either potential martyrs or potential suicides. And the Bible insists that every believer in the one true God has to be a potential martyr. After all, we follow a crucified master who called us and told us to take up our cross. Is there anything that you would be prepared to die for? Where does the courage to live in such a way come from? What comfort is there in the face of this kind of reality? Friends, this is what our good and gracious God prepares us for with Daniel chapter three. And so what I'm going to do is this. I'm gonna do something similar to what we did last week. I want us to read the entirety of Daniel chapter three because I want you to hear it. And I say it this way in the most respectful way I can. We need to rescue part of Daniel chapter three out of simply being a children's storybook Bible story. There's so much here for you and I. There are such bigger questions being asked of us. So I want you to hear it. And so we're going to read through it. And as we read through it, I will try to expose things that help make it more real for you and I even here and now. And then we'll look at how God helps us answer the question, is there anything you and I would be willing to die for now? And where does the courage to live in such a way come from? And where is the comfort that you and I can have in the face of such a reality. That's what's here for us. So pray for me as we jump in that we can get through this in the time we have because I want you to hear it. So Daniel chapter three, let's start in verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So just get your head around this. The the dimensions here, the 60 cubits by six cubits, that's 90 feet tall by nine feet wide, all right? That's what's going on right there. And whether or not this is in some way connected to the dream that he had had in chapter two, where his empire and his reign was the head of gold on this larger image, whether this connects to that or relates to that, history doesn't tell us. The writer of Daniel doesn't give us those specifics. But it was a very strange, very tall, very narrow image of gold. Verse two says, King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And you're gonna hear some repetition here and it's intentional on the writer's part. 
Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Do you get it? King Nebuchadnezzar has set up an image that he wants everyone to pay attention to. The king has something he wants everybody to see, all right? You're supposed to catch this repetition. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O people, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every other kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, if you weren't sure what Daniel chapter 3 was, you're probably certain what it is now because you're probably familiar with the story. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Here is the stage on which Daniel 3 is going to play out. And there are a number of issues that the writer is exposing to us that are going to get worked out throughout the rest of the chapter. So I just want you to see some of the bigger issues that he's helping us to see now. Issues that are very real for you and I, even in the 21st century in 2017. The first thing I just want to clarify, because I know someone's going to ask me, is that scholars have, have spilt enormous amounts of ink ever since this was written to figure out exactly what this was an image of. And guess what? It doesn't tell us. Whether it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, whether it was an image of a god of Babylon, it doesn't say. Most scholars believe that this image that Nebuchadnezzar erected, 90 feet by 9 feet, was something that personified the totality of the spirit of Babylon. Its power, its progress, its glory, its glitz, its glamour, all of the success of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, that Nebuchadnezzar had built, the glory of Babylon is what's represented in this image. What matters is not whether it was supposed to be him himself or some other god. For the understanding of the story, what matters is that everyone from every tribe, every tongue, every language that found themselves in Babylon was ordered to bow down and worship it. Now here's the thing. For nearly every single person that found themselves in Babylon, whether they've been brought there forcefully under slavery by Nebuchadnezzar or whether they were born in the region of the empire of Babylon, for everyone that was there, that was an easy thing to do. Wherever they had come from, they were all polytheists. They all worshiped multiple gods. This was simply one more thing to add to their list. So when he gives this command, conformity would have been normal and understood but not for the Israelites. This was something they simply could not do. Conformity to this command that Nebuchadnezzar gave was an impossibility. Why? God had already told them, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image. See, what we have in Daniel chapter 3 our first and second commandment issues of worship. First and second commandment issues of the heart. First and second commandment issues of allegiance, of loyalty, of hope, of security, of trust. 
The other thing that we see beginning to happen here in Daniel chapter three that's just setting the stage and you and I can begin to relate to is we begin to see a collision course being set between a culture of pluralism and the nature of exclusivism. You see, for Babylon and for Nebuchadnezzar, this was just one more God amongst many. And in some sense, it's as though Nebuchadnezzar is saying to everyone in Babylon, worship whatever God you want to worship just as long as you don't say it's exclusive. You've got to admit that other gods and images like the one I've just built are real and valid. So prove it. Prove you're not an exclusivist religious bigot and worship the image that I've set up. You gotta understand that politically, this was a very wise move to make. This empire was growing and it was spreading and it was being made up of people from all nations and languages just as Daniel chapter three says. So the easiest way to maintain such peace over such a broad and multicultural empire is to make it clear that no one, no tribe, no people in the empire can have an exclusive claim on the truth. If any group or people began to say that they had an exclusive claim on the truth, that could lead to some type of oppression of someone else. Pluralism was the easiest way to keep peace. And so under the guise of peace, politically, there is this great claim for tolerance. This is not all too unfamiliar to the world in which you and I live in now. And so while we may be separated by many centuries from the historical reality of Daniel chapter three, there's nothing new under the sun. The pluralistic claim for tolerance still is a cloak to hide the same intolerant desire that the world now claims Christians are trying to make on everyone else. Being forced to be able to say that you must believe that every single truth is valid and real is just as intolerant as what the pluralist accuses the church of. It sounds kind, it sounds tolerant, but it's just a cloak. Don't be so easily fooled. But there's another issue that the writer of Daniel chapter three is helping us see that's gonna come to a head throughout the story. They don't talk about these in the storybook Bibles anymore. The other issue that is coming to a head in Daniel chapter three is the issue of idolatry itself. Remember, this ultimately underneath the surface is an issue of worship in Daniel chapter three. Where is the allegiance of your heart going to go? Idolatry was not new to God's people when they found themselves as exiles in Babylon. They were no strangers to the seduction of idolatry and the seduction of the worship of false gods. In fact, if you remember in Daniel chapter one when we started the series, they find themselves as exiles in Babylon precisely because they continued to allow their hearts to be seduced by the gods of the nations. They continued to give the trust, the hope, the joy of their hearts over to images that were not really gods. And for centuries through the prophets, God had been speaking to his people to return back to him. He had been trying to expose over and over again the futility of idolatry. Go read Isaiah chapter 44 this week and enjoy it. It's one of the most humorous but striking condemnations of idolatry in the whole Bible. It helps God's people see just how utterly foolish it is to allow your heart to be seduced by such things that are not real. But they would hold out such promise. They would hold out such hope. The gods of the nations would be so seductive. 
the thought of idolatry, of misplaced worship, the thought of the heart being seduced away from the one true living God, that's not, that's not new to even you and I now. In fact, Calvin would say that our hearts are idol factories. And as I've been studying the book of Daniel, I've grown to really enjoy a commentary that was written by a woman named Wendy Wider, and she made this reality for us right here and now real in a way that few people do. She said, sometimes when I sit down to write, I'm facing my computer screen with outstretched hands, and I wonder if I'm bowing before the God of prestige. When I lie prostrate on the couch during prime time, it occurs to me that the God of entertainment and leisure might have taken up residence in my living room. In the glow of the refrigerator, as I partake of unnecessary and even unhealthy calories, I realize I might be fellowshipping with the God of gluttony. Maybe when you kneel down and lace up your running shoes, you can spot the God of self-image skulking at your feet. Or perhaps when you keep an overnight vigil on Black Friday Eve, you can see the God of consumerism lurking in line with you singing the praises of Gadget 5.0 while offering your credit card to the clerk, you might catch a glimpse of the God of technology next to the register. Food, technology, fitness, entertainment, none of these things are bad. As reflections of human creativity, they're all part of God's good creation and are God's gifts to us. It's good for us to enjoy what he's made and derive some satisfaction from them. They're not usually the problem though. She goes on to say, in fact, idolatry is seldom located around us. Rather, it lies within us. It's in the desperately wicked human heart, which is ever reaching for something besides God to satisfy fully. And then she goes on to say, perhaps the most pervasive idol is the idol of human autonomy, the right to do what we want, how we want, when we want, with whomever we want. You see, in a pluralistic world like ours and like the one we find in Daniel chapter three, this ultimately might be the greatest and most dangerous idol. It's the idol of self. I need to be able to do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want, however I want to do it because power and joy ultimately reside in the meaning of my own building. This is what we're seeing play out in a collision with the truth of the one true living God in Daniel chapter three. It's no simple children's Bible story. It's first commandment issues of worship for you and I. And in God's hands, Daniel chapter three is meant to draw our hearts towards Christ. The word made flesh, the only true full image of the living God to whom the worship of our hearts is meant to be directed. But one of the things that God does to help us get there is help us to see that ordinary faithfulness to the glory of God in a strange land and in a strange time like ours will often come with a price. Let's pick up the story. Verse eight. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Now on the surface, read it like a human and look at the details that you're given. The king didn't know that they had refused to obey his order, did he? This is after the ceremony, right? The king had no idea that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had not obeyed. How does the king find out? Well, some professional colleagues of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's were still stinging over the fact that they could not tell the king the dream that he had had, then give him the interpretation that he was looking for. But God had used Daniel to, get to, to tell the king the dream that he had had and the interpretation of that dream. And Daniel acted on behalf of the rest of the wise men and told the king not to kill them. So these men are alive only because the one true and living God used a Israelite named Daniel to pacify and satisfy by the king's desire to know what the dream was that was bothering him so much and they're still mad about it. So they use this opportunity to try to get ahead. You've been so extraordinarily kind to these Israelites. Now there's going to be some ethnic persecution brought in. You've been kinder to them than they deserve and this is how they repay you? This is how they return your kindness? They don't listen to you? Now they're going to start stroking his ego. So verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. And so they brought these men before the king and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? He didn't have to ask them. You realize that, right? He had said, if you don't do it, I'm killing you. But they get brought to him and he gives them a chance. And I'll give you one soapbox for the morning and I'll try to make it as quick as I can. Just something by way of observation for us that live in a day of social media obsession and recognition obsession. They had to be ratted out by their colleagues their conscience would not allow them to disobey the commands of their God and therefore they would not obey the command of the emperor. But their conscience did not require them to make a public stink about it. You realize this, right? They had a private, real objection of conscience to what they were being told to do by the state. And in their obedience to their God, they could not obey what they were being told to do. But that same conscious objection did not require them to make a public stink about it. You and I live in a day and an age whereby recognition is so sought after. Fame is bought at the, at the cost of just being known for something that every single thing we can put online, the more likes we get, the more retweets we get, the more times it's shared, the better it makes us feel. And so all of a sudden we feel like we have some kind of obligation to make a public issue out of everything we disagree with. Scientists and psychologists are telling us it's becoming a chemical addiction in the brain. What it actually does when people like what we're saying and join in our statements. And if you think I'm just being angry, Sinclair Ferguson, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th and 21st century, said that people who do not, people of faith do not have a psychological need to make a big deal out of their acts of heroism and obedience. 
People of faith do not need to always be drawing attention to the fact that they're different than everyone else. But we might be suffering from this psychological need as a culture to draw attention to ourselves. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had a very real objection of conscience and therefore they could not obey. But they didn't make it a public thing. There's something for us in that. That's my soapbox of the day, I promise. I'll get down now. Verse 15 tells us though, the king does give them a private ceremony. So they kind of get a bit of a mulligan on the whole thing. Verse 15, now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. Second chance, strike up the band, same thing. When you hear the music, fall down and worship, it's all water under the bridge, right? But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And here is the gauntlet being thrown down in chapter three. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Every chapter, we get a gauntlet thrown down somewhere in the story. The story gets built up to a point where some kind of challenge is thrown down. Here is the challenge of Daniel chapter three. Who in the entire universe could possibly save you from me? Who could you even conceive of that could be more powerful than me? And I love in reading Daniel chapter three, in particular the first six chapters of Daniel, the literary way the writer of Daniel puts the stories together. Because there's a sense in which the writer of Daniel is forcing God's people throughout history to ask themselves a very simple question when they read this. You see back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, centuries before Daniel chapter three, God had declared to his people that I am he and there is no one beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So it's almost like the writer of Daniel is putting these things together so that God's people have to answer the question of their own life and in their own heart, where is the allegiance of my heart going to lie? Where do I think security, deliverance, joy and prosperity is found? Is it found in the one true God in whose hand I find refuge or, or is it over here and what the spirit of the day has to offer? Where is my heart going to find refuge and security? Do I believe Deuteronomy chapter 32? So verse 16, the story keeps going. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, read it like a human. The lawyers in nine o'clock and 10 o'clock have all told me that it is accurate that when you stand before a judge, and you realize they were standing before judge and jury in Nebuchadnezzar. He was the emperor of Babylon, and he asked them a straight question. When the judge asks you a question in the courtroom and you say, I'm not going to answer it, that is contempt of court. Did they not understand the gravity of what they were dealing with? Were they too young and too naive, too foolhardy in their behavior to really understand the gravity of the moment? They are on trial in front of the emperor of Babylon for their life. And they refuse to answer the question but they keep going. If this be so, if this is how you're gonna to choose to respond, king, if this is what you want, 
our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now make it real for a minute, all right? Just think for a second. They could have come up with any number of plausible reasons why in that moment, right then and there, it would have been a good idea for them just to give in and do what he asked, right? They had been set up by the emperor, by the king, to be overseers of different provinces of Babylon. Who's going to watch out for the affairs of the Israelites in Babylon if they lose their jobs? Calvin would write about this hundreds of years ago. Who's going to be a buffer for the Israelites if they get burnt to a crisp? In their position in society, their position of power, in their political roles, they can look out for the Israelites while they're in Babylon in exile. Look, take a knee, bow to the image, take the incense, throw it to the idol. You can say in your heart, I'm only doing this in my official capacity, but I actually believe personally that it's wrong. That works today. They could have done it then. They could have come up with any number of rationalizations to actually give in in this moment. But they don't. Instead, what you see in Daniel chapter 3 is simply the fruit of ordinary faithfulness to the glory of God. You see, biblical faith and biblical courage are simply the fruit of ordinary faithfulness to the glory of God. Listen to what they said. God is able. I know him. I know who he is. I know what he's done. He is able. And he is willing. But he might not be in this moment. They were certain of God's power. They were certain of God's ability. They were certain of God's willingness. They knew God's revealed will to his people. What had God revealed as his will for his people that they were certain of? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image. God had been very clear about his will for his people. And God had been very clear about his capability for his people. What they were uncertain about was what you can call God's circumstantial will in the moment. And in response to that, in light of what they know about God and what he's revealed, they were humbly willing to leave it in his hands. Friends, that is biblical faith. Biblical faith knows the power of God. And at the same time, biblical faith guards the freedom of God. Biblical faith in the life of God's people leads us to cling to the truth of God in all circumstances. I know he's able and I know he's willing, but if not, we're still not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. See, this pseudo version of biblical faith that's becoming so popular in the world today is absolutely allergic to uncertainty like this. I'm sure you could find a book somewhere or a preacher somewhere saying that if he were back there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he would have bound the fire and bound Nebuchadnezzar and walked on out the door. This pseudo faith has no space for what C.S. Lewis would say, God is not a tame lion. 
You know who he is and what he's capable of. And yet this pseudo faith can't leave room for the mysterious reality of how he chooses to work according to his wisdom. Dale Ralph Davis wrote a great commentary on Daniel and I will tell you, if you ever want to study a book of the Old Testament and you want to read a commentary along with it, go find out if Dale Ralph Davis has written one because you won't find a better one. It's easy, it's readable, and it's fantastic. And Dale Ralph Davis said this about this moment in Daniel chapter three. True biblical faith never attempts to predict God's ways. True biblical faith holds fast to God's word obeys God's truth and doesn't attempt to plot God's path for him. See, true biblical faith is simply fruit of ordinary faithfulness to the glory of God. They know who the one true God is. They know him and are known by him. And the fruit of their ordinary faithfulness to God is this biblical faith and it's the courage you see displayed. This courage comes from knowing the character of the one that they serve. So their confidence in this moment and their courage in this moment was rooted in the character of God that they knew, not the agenda they wanted him to accomplish. And for the sake of time, part of me just wants to draw a line right here to end the morning because this is the moment in the story when the real miracle happens. Most of you know what's gonna happen in the next few verses. You've heard the story before. And most of us understand that what was gonna happen next is always the miracle that we look at and talk about with the story. But this right here, standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, responding to him with this kind of confidence and assurance in God is the real miracle. Ordinary faithfulness to the glory of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, prepared these three men to face the fiery furnace with courage. See, that's... That's where biblical faith comes from. It's just born out of a relationship with God. It's what creates a truly fearless yet humble heart. As you continue to read the story, you're going to begin to hear an echo of what we remember even in this time of year. An echo of the presence of God with his people, the one that they had served, the one that they were worshiping, the one in whom they knew. Let's, let's listen to the rest of the story and let's see if that's where biblical courage comes from. What, where is the comfort that you and I can have when we face difficulties like this? Where does that come from? Look at verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. There's some repetition there, right? It's a burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound, 
walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You see, he's beginning to answer his own question right here. What God could you even imagine would ever be capable of delivering you from me? Of saving you from me? And the question being asked by the writer down throughout the centuries of God's people, where is the confidence and the security for deliverance going to come for your heart? Where are you going to put it? Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. And he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw the fire had no power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Now I want you to realize, when the king called for this fiery furnace to be heated up seven times its normal heat, he could have called for it to be heated up seven times, 70 times. And if God wanted to deliver Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from having to step foot in the fire, God could have blown it out like a birthday candle. They could have relit it and he blows it right out. If he wanted to deliver them and save them from the fire, he could have done it. But in his wisdom, God chose to save them and God chose to deliver them, not from the fire, but in the fire and through the fire. It's as though he was trying to say something to his people like he had said through his prophet Isaiah. Fear not, I've redeemed you. I've called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'm going to be with you. When you go through the rivers, they won't overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame will not consume you. I want you to see in the story, Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't standing there in awe and astonished simply at the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had come out of the fire delivered. He was standing in awe of how their God delivered them. When you realize how their God delivered them, you'll begin to see where the kind of comfort that is offered to us by God comes from when we face our own difficulties. Nebuchadnezzar said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. This angel, the appearance of the fourth, he said is like a son of the gods. Again, another issue in Daniel chapter three that historians and scholars have spilled gallons of ink on trying to figure out over the centuries. Who exactly was this fourth man? Well, in the Old Testament, we have stories throughout the Bible of the angel of the Lord appearing to men. And every time you come across the angel of the Lord appearing to man, you find them realizing that they are on holy ground and falling down and worshiping. But then sometimes you, you find different people in the Bible over in the New Testament, let's say. Let's say John, for example, who will talk about different times that angels appear to men. And every single time someone tries to take off their shoes and bow down, what does the angel do? I mean, don't worship me. I'm created just like you. So scholars have tried to figure out for centuries, who is it in the fire? Is it the angel of the Lord or is it an angel from the Lord? 
Who is it here? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I don't think the author of Daniel knew exactly who this fourth man was. But by God's grace, in the testimony of his word, God has given us a picture of someone who is from the Lord and at the same time acts like he is the Lord. We have a picture of someone like that, don't we? Could the fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be the pre-incarnate Christ? I think so. Why do I think that? I think we have a picture here of the Son of God walking in the fire with his people. Centuries later, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is going to be teaching his disciples. He's going to tell a series of parables, and he's going to give interpretation to the parables. And one of the parables that he tells speaks of when the fullness of God's promise is going to come, when all things will be made new, and those who are not of the Lord will be cast into an eternal wrath where they will experience the wrath of God for all of eternity. And in Matthew chapter 13, do you know what Jesus calls the wrath of God that people will experience for the entire of eternity? He calls it a fiery furnace, the exact same language and words used in Daniel chapter 3. When Jonathan Edwards was preaching on that chapter in the Gospels, Edwards said that Jesus was sweating blood in Gethsemane because he was about to willingly walk into the fiery furnace. The door was open and he was watching the flames dance. Jesus would walk into the fiery furnace of God's eternal and holy wrath for us. And on his body, on the cross, he would take the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. He willingly went into that fire for you and I. You see, when the tolerant, pluralistic world wants to offer you something, they can't offer you a God that you can know loves you like this. Jesus willingly walked into the fiery furnace of God's wrath for us so that now he can walk with us through our fiery trials and we can know that he's with us. I have to believe that this is what was in Peter's mind when he wrote to the church, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. You're going to have lesser furnaces on this earth that you are going to be required to walk through. Don't be surprised by them, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't be surprised. Your king went into the furnace of God's wrath for you so that as you and I face our fiery trials now, we can know that he's in the fire with us and that as he's with us in the fire, he is delivering us through it and he is using that very fire to refine us into his image and likeness. I think we're seeing in Daniel chapter 3 that our God, our King, saves us in the fires and he refines us through them. You see, walking through the dark valleys, as Psalm 23 would talk about, it's just part of the course. We're not to be surprised by them. But by grace, through faith, we can know what the psalmist said. We have nothing to fear. Why? Where is our good shepherd? Is he up on another valley, up on another peak, looking down on us in the darkest of valleys? 
Is he somewhere else with a scope looking down, making sure everything will be okay? No, he's right there with us in it. See, friends, it's in knowing him. It's the ordinary faithfulness of God's people to know him and be known by him. That is where this kind of courage and this kind of faith to live for his glory in a day like ours actually comes from. It's in this kind of ordinary faithfulness that the fruit of true biblical faith and true biblical courage comes and the reality of comfort, the comfort that is ours by grace is born. He's present in the flames with us. Friends, this is what we get the privilege of remembering every single week as we respond to God's word and receiving communion. We're remembering that our king and our savior didn't stand apart from the fire, but went into the fire for us. His body broken in our place for our sin. His blood shed for our forgiveness, for our joy that you and I might know as we face our fiery trials. He may not deliver us around them, but he will certainly save us through them. And in saving us through them, by grace, he makes us more like himself. And we get the privilege and joy of sharing in his sufferings with him. Friends, this is the the message of Daniel chapter 3. This is where true biblical faith is found. This is where true biblical courage is built. This is where true gracious comfort comes from. Ordinary faithfulness to the glory of God with a long-term view. Friends, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to have a chance to respond this morning. We're going to remember the sacrifice of Christ in our place for our sins as we take communion. We're going to sing and make much of him with our mouths. And then he's going to send us out joyfully as his people in this place together for his glory and our joy. So let me pray and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning that, Lord, you're honest with us. You're clear with us. But even in your honesty, you, you give us hope, you give us courage, Lord, and you cultivate in us faith. Lord, help us as your people to know you and revel in the fact that by grace through your son we're known by you. Build in us, cultivate in us real confidence and faith in you. Real, true faith that's rooted in who you are that's not manipulated by any agenda that we think we may have for you. And Lord, give us the courage necessary to be your people in this place, to live as a testimony to your glory and your grace, Lord. And as you do, let us feel the reality of the comfort that is ours by your mercy through your son. We ask that you would do this in his name for his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Marine given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.